So today we are uh, resuming our study in the book of Hebrews after being away from it for three weeks. Uh, in case you have forgotten, this study uh, is called It's All About Jesus. And today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 5. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and uh, we will look uh, at the text here in just a few uh, minutes. I want to remind you, since we've been away from the series for a while, I want to remind you of the circumstances of the writing of Hebrews. Jewish believers in Jesus were being tempted to turn away from faith in Jesus and to turn back to the law and to the Jewish traditions. Uh, some had walked away from faith in Jesus. Others were being appealed to by family and friends who did not share their faith to turn back to the law and Jewish traditions. And the author of Hebrews wrote to these folks, uh, at least in part, to appeal uh, to those who were facing this temptation that they not give in to it. Don't give in to the temptation uh, to turn away from Jesus is, is his appeal. And the nature of his appeal is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets that you're tempted to return to. His appeal is that everything in the Old Covenant, everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and that Jesus is greater than all of that. Jesus is greater than the law. Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than everything that came before him and that pointed to him. Everything in the Old Testament was about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is greater than everything that came before him. And so we have seen, if you remember, those of you who have been with us, we've seen that the author has argued throughout Hebrews so far that Jesus is greater than the angels, which was really just kind of a way of saying that Jesus was greater than the law. Jesus was greater than Moses. And now as we enter into chapter 5, the author is going to continue to drive home that Jesus is greater than everything that came before him by proclaiming that Jesus is a high priest that is greater than the high priest of the old covenant. In Hebrews chapter 5, part of what we're going to see are the qualifications and the responsibilities of the high priest of the old covenant. And then we'll see how Jesus meets those qualifications, how he meets those responsibilities, but not just how he meets them, but how he exceeds them, how he is the greater high priest. And so we're going to go fairly quickly today, hopefully. Uh, admittedly today, this is going to come off maybe a little bit academic, a little bit luxury, uh, but it's very important information that we need to, uh, to get. It's important for us to understand these things, and there are important applications for us and our relationship with God. So let's look now at our text, Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10, should be on the screen. And why don't we uh, continue what we have been doing most of the time lately, and let's read it uh, together. So here we go. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, 
as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So keep in mind, the author is writing to people very familiar with the Old Testament law, very familiar with the priesthood and all aspects of the Old Covenant. And so he's continuing to demonstrate, continuing to show that Jesus is greater than all of that. And his focus for this section is that Jesus is greater. He's a greater high priest than the high priest of the Old Covenant. So let's begin by uh, looking at considering the qualifications and responsibilities of the high priest under the Old Covenant. The responsibilities of the high priest uh, of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. Uh, Hebrews 5 shares two qualifications. In verse 1, here's what we see. Every high priest is selected from among the people. The idea here is that the priest were to come from their own people, uh, in this case from the people of Israel, specifically one of the 12 tribes that made up the people of God, the tribe of Eli, this particular tribe was chosen for the priesthood to represent the children of Israel before God. And at least generally speaking, from the time of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law until John the Baptist, the high priests were selected not just from the tribe of Levi, but also from the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother. And so the high priest came from the tribe of Levi. They were descendants of Aaron, and this is why we say they were part of the Levitical Aaronic priesthood. The key idea here, the main thing that I want you to see, is the idea of representation. The priest came from among the children of Israel to represent the children of Israel before God. So priests are representatives. The second qualification is found in verses 1 and 4. In verse 1, the high priest is appointed to represent the people. And in verse 4, we find that no one takes this honor on himself, but instead he receives it when he is called by God. So the honor comes from God. And it's said here, he receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. And so the two qualifications listed here are that the high priest must come from among the people they're going to represent and that they cannot take the honor on themselves, but rather they have to receive the honor. They have to be called by God just as Aaron, Moses' brother, was uh, way back those many years ago. We know from the testimony of Scripture that the choosing of the tribe of Levi and the choosing of Aaron and his descendants 
was something that was done by God. They were called by God. They were appointed by God. They were set apart by God for that task. And so those are the qualifications for priests that we see in chapter 5. And we also see in chapter 5 four responsibilities that priest had. Four responsibilities that were theirs to carry out among the people of Israel. Here's the first one, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. So uh, already mentioned that. They, they are there. They are, uh, their role is to represent the people to God. Their second responsibility is found in verse 2. It says, he, the high priest, is able to deal gently, deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Don't you just love how the Bible words things sometimes? That if you're going astray from Christ, it's ignorant. It's ignorant. But we're to deal gently uh, when, when people are doing something that is ignorant and going astray. And, and, and here's why the priest himself was subject to the same weakness. And so the second responsibility of the priest was to deal gently with people. Uh, it, it, it was to be kind and compassionate and, and understanding when they, would, when they would do something that is just not very smart and turn away uh, from God. And so the high priest was supposed to be helped in this responsibility by keeping in mind his own weakness. He's no different than the people that he's representing. He is weak just like they are weak. So then we go to the third uh, responsibility. And one of the ways that the high priest keeps his own weakness in mind it actually is his third responsibility. Verse 3 tells us, this is why he, the high priest, has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. So the high priest was to represent people to God. He would uh, offer sacrifices on the behalf of the people. We'll see that in his next responsibility. But before he did that, he had to make sacrifices for himself because he's no better than those who he represents. He sins, and his sins must be atoned for just like those he represents. So he represents the people to God. He is gentle with the people. He makes sacrifices on his own behalf. And then his fourth responsibility is to offer gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And verse 1 tells us about this. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. We see this again in verse 3. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. By the way, you should know that uh, when you see the word sacrifices here in Hebrews 5, it is specifically referring to the shedding of blood for the atonement of sins. Sacrifices are blood sacrifices for the purpose of atoning for sins. So this is the system that the Jewish believers in Jesus are considering returning to. They are considering turning away from faith in Christ and returning to this, 
returning to the law and the, and the Jewish traditions and the whole sacrificial system. Many are facing pressure from family and friends to, to go back to this system where the Jewish high priest would represent them before God, where he would offer sacrifices on his own behalf and then he would offer sacrifices for them. Again, they're being tempted to return to the law and to Jewish traditions. And as the writer of Hebrews has in various ways throughout the letter, he writes here in chapter 5 to explain and to appeal to them that this is really misguided for them to consider turning back to their old way of life. And here's why he's making the case that it's misguided. Because Jesus is a greater high priest than what they would be returning to. And he is greater than everything that has come before him that they're being tempted to return to. Again, everything before Jesus, all of God's dealing with mankind that you read in the Old Testament, all of it pointed to Jesus. And Jesus is greater than all of those things that pointed to him. And so the author tells us how Jesus is a greater high priest. Let's observe first how Jesus fulfilled the qualifications of a high priest. We found that a high priest is one who would represent the people in matters related to God. He had to come from among the people that he would represent to God. Hebrews 5, 7 through 9 tell us, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Son of God, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. Verse 7 references the days of Jesus' life on earth. This is a reference to the incarnation of God the Son uh, coming and taking on human flesh. And we see in these verses that Jesus was a man who did things that men do and felt things that men feel. Jesus prayed. Jesus cried fervently. Jesus shed tears. He learned obedience from things that he suffered. All of these things make the point that Jesus was truly a man. He was, and he even is to this very day, truly one of us. He's one of us. And so he can represent us to God. He is our high priest who has been selected from among the people that he would represent before God. And then in verses 5 and 6, our text makes clear that not only uh, was Jesus uh, able to represent us because he is one of us, but that he was appointed by God as high priest. He was selected and appointed. He was called by God. Verse 4 says, no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God. And then verse 5 says, in the same way Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. That's a quote from Psalm 2-7. And then verse 6, and he says another place, and this is a quote from Psalm 110.4. God says to Jesus, you are a priest forever 
in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll talk about Melchizedek shortly, and we'll talk about Melchizedek more here in a couple of weeks, but the main thing to see here is that Jesus is appointed a high priest by the Father. Both Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-4 affirm that. So Jesus fulfills both the qualifications we see for a high priest in Hebrews 5 in that he is a man and can represent us to God because he came from among us and he fulfills the qualification of being selected and appointed by God. So he fulfills the qualifications of a high priest. And then we see that Jesus also fulfills the responsibilities of a high priest. But with every responsibility of a high priest that Jesus fulfills, we see that he does so in a greater way. We see that he is a greater high priest. He is different than all the other high priests, and he is greater than all the other high priests. And so let's consider how Jesus is greater, okay? He was selected from among the people because he's one of us, just like every other high priest, but he is different than every other high priest because he isn't just a priest that's called by God He is God's son. He is God's unique son. Verse 5 tells us this. He is, yes, the son of man, born of the Virgin Mary, truly human, but he is also the son of God. And so he's a greater high priest because not only is he able to represent mankind before God, but he is able to perfectly reveal God to mankind. Every high priest was chosen from among the people, and Jesus was one of us, is one of us, like every other high priest, but he was different. He is different and greater because he alone is the unique only begotten Son of God. As a man, he represents us before God, but as God, he can reveal to us exactly what God is like. High priest of the Old Covenant could tell people some things about God, but Jesus shows us exactly who God is and what God is like. Jesus is greater. He's greater. Second responsibility. The high priest had to be able to deal gently with people. And we're told that he was able to do so because he could understand everybody's weakness because he himself was weak. Jesus is able to understand our weakness because he was tempted in every way like we are. But he's different than every other high priest because he did not sin. He lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God. Verse 7 says, his prayer was heard because of his reverent submission to God. Verse 8 tells us, he learned obedience from what he suffered 
Jesus' sinless life validated his character so that having been perfect in obedience, he was able to become the source of eternal salvation. And so here's the deal. Every other high priest was able to deal gently with people because they too were sinners. Jesus is able to deal gently with people because he faced every temptation that we face, and so he knows how challenging those temptations are to us. But he didn't sin. He did not give in to them, which means that he can help us in ways that other high priests could never help us. Jesus is greater. And because of the moral quality of his life, the next thing we see is the way that he can help us that no other high priest could ever help us. Where every other high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, Jesus did not have to because he never sinned. We see in verses 7 through 10 and through the consistent witness of the New Testament that Christ was without sin. He lived in perfect obedience to God. He is greater than every other high priest. They all sinned as frequently as everybody else, I'm pretty certain. They all sinned. And so they had to offer sacrifices for their sins. Jesus doesn't have to do that. He's different. He's greater than every other high priest. And that leads to this next point, which is one I love and which we all should love if we, if we understand Jesus and what he's done for us. The high priest would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. If you have familiarity with the Old Testament system, they would offer spotless lambs that would be killed and their blood spilled to roll back the sins, the guilt of people for a year. But instead of offering sacrifices on behalf of the people like every other high priest, what Jesus did is he offered himself as the sacrifice for people. Other high priests offered a sacrifice. Jesus offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the people. Verse 9 has this in view when it tells us that he became the source of eternal salvation. This is why when Jesus came uh, out to see John the Baptist and John the Baptist first encountered Jesus, here's what John proclaimed. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He sounds like the, like, like the author of Hebrews. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's why later in Hebrews, Jesus will be called the perfect sacrifice. It's why Jesus himself said that he came to give his life as a ransom. Priests of the old covenant offered sacrifices for the people, but Jesus, the greater high priest, offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for the people. All of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Jesus. Pointed to Jesus. 
But he was always God's plan. It's always been about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the greater high priest. And there's one other thing we see in our text that speaks to the uniqueness and the greatness of Jesus. Other high priests of the Levitical, Aaronic priesthood, they lived and they died and their priesthood came to an end. But the scripture tells us that Jesus is high priest forever. He's the greater high priest because he's high priest forever. Verse 5 and uh, chapter 5 verse 10 says of Jesus that he was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now that's the second time that we've seen Melchizedek's name in our text today. Uh, And we're not going to look too closely at Melchizedek until we get to chapter 7. But here's why this reference matters here in chapter 5. Chapter 7 says this of Melchizedek. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains priest forever. Now again, I know that brings up tons of questions, and we will talk about those in a couple weeks. But here is the key for today. When verse 10 says that Jesus was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek, it means simply that his priesthood will never end. Aaron lived and died and his priesthood ended. All of his descendants lived and died and their priesthood ended. But Jesus is greater. He is high priest forever. Here's what all this means. Because Jesus was not just a man, but also God, not only a priest, but also God's son, because Jesus understands our weakness but lived a sinless life, because he didn't just offer temporary sacrifices for the people, but offered himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice, because of all of that, according to verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation. If we take a sneak peek at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, here's what we find. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Get this next verse. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. All of the sacrifices under the Old Covenant could never take away sin. But what they could not do, Jesus with his one sacrifice has done for all time. Jesus is greater. The countless bulls and goats that were sacrificed couldn't take away sin. But Jesus did by his one sacrifice. Here's how theologian 
William, with a bad name, uh, last name Fudge, explains it. Because he was without sin, Jesus possessed the power of an indestructible life. With such a verdict from God, meaning God's affirmation of Jesus' sinlessness, it was impossible for death to retain him. A life so faithful and sinless could not remain dead. Jesus is therefore high priest forever because he lives forever to save forever those who approach God through him. Jesus is greater. The author is making the point to his first readers that Jesus is greater than the law, greater than the prophets, greater than the Jewish traditions. He's greater than everything that came before him and pointed to him. And because of that, it should be absolutely unthinkable for them to turn away from Christ and to turn back to the law when the whole point of the thing was to lead them to Jesus. Most of us here today are not tempted by returning to some legalistic religious system. Those are not the things that tempt us to turn away from Christ. But we nevertheless face temptations to turn away. Our temptations are different, but the end result is the same. We face a pull, a draw, perhaps pressure from others. We face temptation to turn away from Christ and to turn back to lesser things. Some of us are tempted to turn away from Christ because of desiring acceptance from friends. There's something about our commitment to Jesus that isn't sitting well with our friendship circles and and so we're facing temptation. They, they want us to do things or believe things or affirm things that Jesus doesn't allow us to. And, and the pressure from them is tempting us to turn back. Some are tempted to turn away from Christ because they desire the approval of society. These first two things, the pressure from family and friends, the pressure from the culture around you, were powerful forces that were impacting the thinking of the first readers of Hebrews. Friends, society, tempt us away from Jesus in different ways than what they face, but, but tempt us nevertheless. Many are tempted to turn away from Christ because we've convinced ourselves that something we want and something we feel like we can't have as long as we're with Jesus, we've convinced ourselves that that is more valuable than what Jesus is. Oftentimes that is some, some sin. Some sin that we're drawn to. Here's the point that spans the centuries from Hebrews' first readers to us today. Jesus is greater than everything in our lives that came before him. He is greater than our friends. He is greater than our family. He is greater than our belief systems. He is greater than the approval of society. He is greater than our favorite sins. And so it should be unthinkable for those of us who have come to faith in Christ to turn away from him 
and to turn back to any of those things. And yet those things tempt us to turn away. Essentially what the author of Hebrews is asking is what could possibly be worth turning away from the one who is the source of eternal salvation? And the answer is nothing. Nothing is worth that. Jesus, the greater high priest, Jesus, the one who is greater than everything that tempts us away from him, deserves our faithfulness, our fidelity. He deserves for us to remain committed to him. He deserves our obedience. And I want you to notice something in verse 9 that make, sometimes makes good evangelical Christians jumpy. Verse 9 says that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hold on a minute. Hold on. Shouldn't that just say all who believe? Shouldn't it? Two passages in Romans can help us understand this. Here's what Romans 1.5 says. Paul writes, Through him, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. We are saved by grace through faith, not by our own works or deserving. Don't let there be any doubt about that. But understand this, there is obedience that comes from faith. There just is. Romans 16, 25 through 27, Paul writes and makes essentially the same point. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So we see it again. Obedience comes from faith. It springs out of faith. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. They, they go together. We're not justified by our obedience. We're, we're not uh, saved, if you will, by our obedience. We're not born again because we're obedient. But if we're saved, if we're justified, if we're born again, there will be obedience. Not perfect obedience. Only Jesus did that. But there will be obedience. He is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus is greater than everything that tries to distract us from him. And so he deserves our faith. He deserves our fidelity. He deserves our obedience. And that is my prayer for all of us here today that every one of us would really believe that Jesus is greater than everything else 
that tries to get our attention and that we would give him the obedience his greatness deserves. May it be true for us. Why don't you stand? 